Well, good morning, everyone again. Thank you, Alex and Phil, for just um, focusing our thoughts and minds on, on what truly matters. And that is um, the salvation that we have in Christ that gives us the confidence to live from day to day. As you know, um, I'm exploring a series uh, called What Christians Pursue, where we're examining the attitudes and the behaviors and characteristics um, of genuine Christians. So far, we've been dealing with passages uh, in the New Testament, but for today's um, pursuit, I'd like us to look in the Old Testament to the book of Psalms the hymn book of the nation of Israel. My text today is a psalm that some of you, or maybe all of you know by heart. Some of you maybe consider it your favorite psalm, Psalm 23. And I pray that our time together will help us to understand this psalm more so that it will grow more precious to us because of the comfort that it brings, not because of some sentimental words, but because of deep and rich theological truth that is rooted in the character of God. If you haven't turned there already, please do so, or you can just read off the screen. And be reminded that this is the Word of God, so please honor it with your full attention. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May God bless his word and may it not return void for the purpose with which he has issued it. Shall we pray and ask him to illumine our hearts through this text. Gracious God and loving Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, for all the songs that we have sung and, Lord, for gathering around this table to be reminded, Lord, just of who you are and who we are in you. And Father God, we just ask that the songs that we have sung that All I have is Christ. Father, may truly ring genuinely in our hearts to know that Christ is sufficient for us, for all our needs. He is our shepherd, and we will not want. And we just pray that you will show us how this is true. We ask in Jesus' most holy and precious name. Amen. What do Christians pursue? Well, I would like to suggest that Christians pursue contentment. Now, someone might say, uh, this is uh, an Old Testament passage. How, how does it apply to New Testament believers like us? Well, I think it can apply because when, even though David wrote the psalm, he's saying, the Lord is my shepherd, Yahweh is my shepherd. But Jesus, in John 10, tells us that he is the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, 14 and 15. So as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we can safely say that this text about the good shepherd can be applied legitimately to our lives today. Uh, Secondly, someone might say, okay, fine, that's good, we can apply this text to us today. But where does this text talk to us about contentment? It talks to us about protection and God's provision, for sure. But where does it talk about contentment? And I would suggest that right there at the end of verse 1, 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Hebrew phrase which says not want talks about causing a lack or causing something to diminish. And so David is saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I will not fear lack. And so not fearing lack is being happy with what you have and I suggest that's contentment. Thirdly, someone might say, okay, fine, the text is talking about contentment and, uh, you know, uh, it can be applied to our lives, but um, why do we need to pursue contentment? Isn't something that this is natural in our lives, that we just feel content naturally because of what God has given us? Yes, we should. But Paul, in writing to the Philippian church, says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content In whatever circumstances I am, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know to live in prosperity. In in and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering great need. Philippians 4, 11 and 12. Writing to Timothy, he says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. That word content or contentment gives us the idea of the perfect state of life where we don't need any further aid or help. And so Paul is saying that he has reached that state where he doesn't feel he needs anything, really. Aside from the grace of God. And so if we are to follow Paul's example, we need to be content. And as we shall see from the psalm, contentment is not simply a passive feeling but an active choice that we make when we are confronted by the ups and downs of life. So, contentment is a worthy pursuit of the Christian life. We can learn about it from this psalm, and we can uh, legitimately apply the, the knowledge and the promises and the assurances of this psalm to our life. So, having said that, uh, that's my introduction. Let's get into the text to understand what it means and how it can be applied to our lives. My endeavor to show you uh, is to show you that if, if Christ is your shepherd, then there will be, then you will be content in at least five areas of your life. These five areas apply to us all because they are so fundamental. My hope is that as we unpack the text verse by verse, the application should become evident because it is very, very obvious to see. So let's look at the first area of contentment. In verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The first area of contentment in our lives that we should pursue as Christians, I would like to submit, is contentment in identity. It's foundational and we need to be absolutely clear about what this means because uh, the rest of the psalm is understood in the context of contentment in identity. And so we're going to spend a while on this point. To to begin with, what does it mean to be content in our identity? We've talked about it. We've sung about it today. Phil said that God has saved us. And so that gives us joy and, and cause to celebrate. It's not because of any God. It's not because of any religion. It is because of the God who has saved us in order to bring us into a relationship of joy and intimacy with Him. To be content, therefore, means to rest in the knowledge that you are a sheep, someone who always requires attention, someone who always requires direction, someone who can't really figure out things for themselves, Someone who is prone to wander. Someone who is weak and vulnerable. It means to be content that as a sheep, Christ is your only shepherd. There are two elements in this contentment. You are content with who Christ is. And you are content with who you are in Christ. Let me read a few passages that demonstrate this very clearly. Second Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us everything 
pertaining to life and godliness. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why? Because His divine power has granted to me everything pertaining to life and godliness. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why? Because He has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why? Because in Him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily and I have been made complete in Him. Colossians 2.9 and 10 Our contentment as Christians is tied inextricably to Christ. If Christ is our shepherd, we shall not want. He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, meaning you have all you need for your daily life to live in the way that God wants you to live. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, meaning there is no blessing left for Him to give you. You have, sitting right here, right now, every blessing that you will ever have in eternity. He makes us complete, meaning that when we are in Him, we are not deficient, we are not inadequate. So if you profess that Christ is your shepherd, but your life is still filled with discontentment and a sense of dissatisfaction, perhaps that there is an indication that there is something amiss with your profession. Could it be that you are living in disobedience to God's word? Could it be that when God says that you are complete in Christ, that you take that to be as being complete in some things, but not other things? Yes, I know Jesus has saved me, but I have self-esteem issues. I need a better life. Yes, I know Jesus has saved me, but I'm looking for something a bit more contemporary. Something hip. Yes, Jesus has saved me, I know that, but I also just pray to some other gods just to you know, make up for cultural differences. Yes, I know Jesus has saved me, but I still buy the lotto ticket, you know, just as insurance. We say that Jesus has saved us, but we don't seem to understand what being saved really means. Because if we knew that, we would be out of, jumping out of our skins with joy. John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it just like that. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. What part of abundantly don't we understand? Salvation does not apply, imply deficiency. It implies excess. It is not about a life found wanting. It is about a life that is overflowing. Salvation is not about Jesus giving you what you need. Salvation is about Jesus being what you need. I hope you understand that difference. I'll say it again. Salvation is not about Jesus giving you what you need. It is about Jesus being what you need. The first part is about Jesus plus other stuff. The second part is about Jesus alone. We live in a world where more and more Christians are very happy to take the gifts that Jesus brings, but they are not happy to receive Jesus himself as a gift. What makes you more happy? The gifts that Jesus brings? Or are you happy with Christ alone as a gift? If we haven't grasped this, we haven't grasped the gospel. And that is why we have bought into this lie that somehow someone can be a Christian and still be spiritually deficient. We think that Jesus can be our shepherd and it is still okay to want more and it's not okay. Because God has called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, 2.9. Do you think somehow that his marvelous light is lacking in something? It's marvelous, yes, but I'm still looking for something more. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Did you get that? If you receive mercy, what more could you ask for? This is not just mercy from a politician or from the judge or from your neighbor. It is mercy from your creator. We deserve God's wrath and we've talked about that. So if we have received mercy... He has withheld His wrath from us. He has now given us more than we deserve. He has given us His grace. What more are we looking for? Being content in our identity is vital. Vital. Because it forces us to evaluate whether we truly, truly love Christ. Whether He is truly Sufficient for us. When we sing that song, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Yes, is He your whole life? Because if He's not your whole life, that, that's not what that song is about. It forces us to question whether Christ is truly sufficient. Is He sufficient? For us, Because if he is, then we will not lack in any other area of this life. And then, uh, that's what we will see in the rest of the psalm. Verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The second area of contentment in our lives that we should pursue as Christians is contentment in provision. When we are in Christ, our shepherd, he makes us lie down, he leads us, he restores our soul, he guides us. It's a beautiful picture. The shepherd provides for the needs of the sheep. The sheep are well fed and tended for. It's blissful. It's wonderful. It's the life that we all want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. It's a picture of of surety, of safety, of fullness. The sheep are fed, they're lying down, they're having a munch. It's like me on a Sunday afternoon. I'm well fed, I have a snooze, I lay myself down to rest. Life is beautiful. He leads me beside quiet waters. It's not a rushing stream. It's not a treacherous current. There's no danger of the sheep being sucked into some whirlpool and being drawn away or drowning. It is a quiet stream. The sheep can drink without fear. The shepherd will quench the thirst of his flock. And that's what Jesus says. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. John seven thirty-seven. He restores my soul. Restore means to turn back, to repair, to bring back. And so in the context of this psalm of the sheep, this is about the sheep who goes wandering off, and Christ brings them back. As sheep are prone to do, as we are prone to do, we go wandering off doing our own thing, but Christ brings us back. And there is a great beauty and safety and assurance and hope and joy that when we go off and do our own thing, Christ will bring us back. We sing that song, He will hold me fast. He will not abandon us. Yes, He may let us go off and do our own thing for a while. But He will bring us back. He will not allow us to stay wandering. What does He do instead? He guides me in the paths of righteousness. That is so beautiful. When you are a sheep, when you are a Christian, God, Christ will make you walk in His path. Not the path of the world, in His path. Not the part of the culture, his path. Christianity is counter-cultural. Your lifestyle runs counter to the culture because it is aligned to Christ. 
But that's not all. That's not the best part. The best part is not that he provides. The best part is why he provides. When he makes you lie down in green pastures, when he guides you beside the still waters, when he restores your soul, when he, when he brings you back and makes you walk in the paths of righteousness, you know why he does it. It's not because of you. It's not because of your needs. It's not because he's attracted to you. It's not because of anything to do with you. It is for his name's sake. For the sake of his name. What does that mean? For the sake of his character. For the honor of his being. For the glory and majesty of who he is. For his reputation. That's why he provides. Because his name is at stake, not your need. Why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because the motivation behind God's provision is not in us. It is something, it lies in something greater than us. It lies in a greater consequence, something that has greater prestige, something that is more weighty. What's driving him? It is his name. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited about that. Because if God has to respond to us simply because of our needs, then He doesn't have to do it because the Creator is not obligated to the creature. King Nebuchadnezzar puts it like this, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of the heavens and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4. God himself puts it more succinctly in his questions to Job. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given me that I should repay him? Here's another lie that evangelicals have bought into, and it is the idea that there's something inherently in us that God is attracted. Oh, he, I, he's in my, I've created him in my image. I have to do something for him. I have to do something. Listen to what Scripture says. Isaiah 43:25. I, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions. Why? For my own sake. Ezekiel 36, 22 and 33. Say to the house of Israel, Ezekiel, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of what? Of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am God. Did you get that? It is not for your sake, O Israel, that I am about to act. I am not acting because of your needs. But why are you acting, Lord? For my holy name. 1 John 2.12 I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you. Why have they been forgiven, John? For his name's sake. Those are just three passages, and I could produce 30 more in a second. If God has to respond to us solely because of our need and our situation, that would be the worst position for us to be in. Yes, we may be in pain, we may be in trouble, we may be in strife, but that itself does not create any obligation on Him to respond. But praise God that He provides us for his name's sake. What a comfort that when we pray to him, 
It is not because my pain is on a certain scale and God says, yep, I think that's okay. Karen, you can have your surgery now because, yeah, you're right. This pain is okay. Benji, now sorry, you haven't reached that pain level yet. He responds for his name's sake. And so when we pray, how should that change our prayers? Lord, give me this, give me this, give me this. How, how does that change how we see God as a provider? What does Jesus say? Ask in my name. What does it mean to ask in his name? It means to seek his glory. And to seek his honor. And to seek his reputation. Lord, I'm praying this. Because if it brings you glory, then do it. Romans 8.32 puts the icing on the top. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us some things, few things, all things? Rest assured, we can be content in the provision of Christ, our shepherd. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The third area of contentment in our lives that we should pursue as Christians, I suggest, is contentment in adversity. Hard one. I don't know about you, but I grew up understanding this particular verse, uh, that this was about you know, um, godly confidence. That it was about trusting God in the hard times and trusting God in the good times. And yes, that, that, that is a legitimate understanding of this verse, I believe. But as I was reading this uh, psalm, this particular passage a few weeks ago, my, my, my brain reacted in a way that it hadn't done before. And I went, are you serious? Are you for real? Are you kidding me? I mean, I was just by the quiet waters. I was laying down in green pastures. You brought me back. And now I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, who changed the scenery, man? What is going on here? Do you see, do you see the problem? It's, it's beautiful. It's tranquil. It's, it's, it's idyllic. God is providing for me. Christ is my shepherd. I'm fed. I'm having a snooze. Life is beautiful. And then I wandered off and he brought me back to the paths of righteousness, not for my sake, but for his name's sake. So here's my question. If the Lord brings me back from wandering to lead me in paths of righteousness, for his name's sake, why do I find myself in the valley of the shadow of death? How do I go from still waters to shadow of death? How do I go from green pastures to grave danger? I mean, is God having a laugh out of this? I mean, sure, I can understand... You know, if, if I wandered off and I did my own thing and I ended up in the valley of the shadow of death, I, that's understandable, right? I, I made a mistake. I did, disobeyed. I did something stupid. I put myself in, 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 in a position of risk. And so I got what, I, my, what was the natural consequence of my action. But that's not what's happening here. Look at it again. He restores my soul. He has restored my soul. I'm walking in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake, even though I walk in the valley of... Hang on, hang on, stop. I'm walking in the paths of righteousness. These are good paths. These are right paths. These are paths of justice. I'm doing the right thing. And I end up in the valley of the shadow of death? How is that good? How is it fair? 
The answer is not something that we want to hear, and the answer challenges our idea of what the Christian walk is all about. We find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death because the paths of righteousness take us through these deathly and dark places. That's why Jesus says, you know, if you're not willing to leave your home and your family, your mother and your father, don't come. Have you counted the cost? Which man, if he's going to build a vineyard, he, he doesn't count the cost before he's building a tower. Which, who does that? Have you counted the cost? Another great evangelical misconception is the idea that righteousness somehow produces comfortable outcomes. I'm doing the right thing so I shouldn't have to suffer. But again, scripture shows us how wrong this idea is. Read, read Exodus 14. Read about how Israel comes and stands in front of the Red Sea. Did they get there by mistake? Did, they, did, did someone not have their GPS on? God took them there. God took them there. Who put Daniel in the lion's den? Who put Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the furnace? God did. Who took Christ to the cross? This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You kneel to the cross. What message does God give to Ananias for Paul? Acts 9, 15 and 16. Go Ananias. Go and tell this guy for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel for why I will show him how much he must suffer. Why will he suffer Lord? For my name's sake. Suffering and glory go together. The cross and the crown go together. The paths of righteousness in which Christ, our shepherd, leads us may take us through dark days. But what is David's response? I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Please note that David is not saying that no harm is going to come to him. He's not saying that. He's not saying that oh, oh, evil is not going to happen to me. He's not saying that uh, I'll be fine because I'm going to be unscathed. He's not saying that. What is he saying? He's saying evil may happen, but I will not fear it. Yes, the path that I am taking is the one that the Lord has set me on. It is the path of righteousness. And therefore, I will not fear because you have set me on this path and you will be with me. That is the source of Christian confidence and contentment that God who has called us out of darkness to be in his marvelous light might take us through the valley of the shadow of death, but it is he who has called us, it is he who has set us on the path, and therefore we will not fear. Do you know that fear causes discontent? You find yourself in danger. You find there's a threat to your well-being. And so you want to move to a more safe place. It's natural. It's completely natural. I'm, I'm, there's a threat to my life. I've got to move out from here. There's a threat to my family. There's a threat to my future. And so I've got to move. I've, I've got to go to higher ground. I've got to find a safe place. But sometimes you can't do that. You've been saving and, and living financially responsibly for all your life. And an economic crash just wipes you out in a second. You're a wonderfully responsible driver, but then a drunk driver sideswipes you and takes you out and your family's dead and you're a paraplegic. Evil happens. But we will not fear. Do you see what a counterintuitive response that is? It is not natural. If you go with your gut, your gut will say, get out. But David's not going with his gut. David's going with the Lord. You are with me. As Christians, we are content in our identity. We will be content in adversity. When we are content in our identity as blood-bought sheep, 
we will go where the shepherd takes us. We will understand that the greatest danger is the greatest danger no more. Because God has saved us. What have we to fear? Are you living in fear? Fear of death? Christ has conquered the grave. Fear of being poor? God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Fear of being sinful? God is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with with great joy. Do you believe that? Maybe you're not fearful. Maybe you're just a bit anxious. What does the word say? Be anxious for nothing. We are content in adversity because Christ is sufficient for us. Christ is sufficient. We we have all we need. His rod of protection and his staff of correction are a comfort. And therefore we do not fear. And because we make a choice not to fear, look what happens. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. David merely doesn't choose to be content in adversity. He also pursues contentment in providence. He chooses to be content with how God arranges his situation using the people around him. First of all, note that David is still in a position of adversity. Circumstances have not changed because he is in the presence of his enemies. He is not out of danger, but he does not allow his perilous situation to somehow overshadow God's hand at work. He is sensitive to the fact amidst his enemies that God is working, even in this crisis, because you can see that through his choice of words, you prepare a table for me. This is not luck. This is not chance. This is not coincidence. It's not good fortune. This is the Lord at work. It is deliberate. He sees it because he chooses not to fear. Very often anxiety can cause us to panic. Because we panic, we can't see God work. Because we are so focused and preoccupied with the problem, we don't see God work. In fact, we might even think that God has abandoned us. But David can see God's hands. You know why? Because this is not an ordinary table. Though in English, we just use the word table. But actually, this is a kingly table. It's a special table set aside for special occasions. It's no ordinary table. Who's put it there? God has. In the presence of his enemies. Are there people in your life who are really oppressing you? Do you feel that you've been set upon by people who just want to make you miserable? Do you feel that People's hostility towards you is just because they gain pleasure from it. Could be. What's your response? Do you give in to fear and anxiety? Or do you rest in God's providence? I I believe that David is speaking of a metaphorical table here. It's not a real table. But it is symbolic of the way in which God turns the tables on those who oppose us. He does not remove the adversaries. Mark that. The adversaries are still there, but they can't help it. But they've got to see God blessing you. What a comfort. They may not admit it. They don't like it. But the table is there, in their face. And they can't help but see that God is blessing you. God will publicly display his blessing upon us in such a manner that our adversaries are forced to watch. But that's not a natural observation. 
That's a spiritual observation. It requires spiritual insight. And you can't have spiritual insight if you're discontent. You have anointed my head with oil. Anointment speaks of a, a Middle Eastern tradition of pouring fragrant oil on the head of a distinguished guest to refresh them. That's what they did in those days. You give someone a Coke, or they put oil in your head. It was sweet-smelling. Uh, it, it just refreshed them. It was a sign that said, you're important, you're distinguished, I care about you. That's what we see when the, when the, when the lady breaks that jar of oil on Jesus and, 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 starts, and starts washing his, 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 his feet. This is a picture of welcome and rejuvenation in the middle of trials. I want you to see that. This is a picture of God reviving you, of reinvigorating your soul, and your enemies can see that. He will refresh you as a host refreshes their guest. That's what we can expect when Christ is our shepherd. My cup overflows. Again, picture of a generous host who does not want to let the cup of his, vis- of his visitor, of his guest, be empty even for a second. It speaks of celebration, like we talked about. Abundance. It's a picture of an intimate relationship. A dear relationship. And it's in the middle of enemies. I hope you get that contrast. What an incredibly encouraging reality that the Christian who is content in God's providence will find God overturning their opponents. And you will see it. God will bless. It may not be in a way that you think, but He will bless. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The final area of contentment in our lives that we should pursue as Christians is contentment in anticipation. We see here that the outcome of pursuing contentment in identity, in provision, in adversity, in providence leads to naturally contentment in anticipation. Have you ever spoken to people about the future? Ask someone what they think about the future. Someone who is unsaved. There is a lot of fear and dread about the future. That's why you have an industry called astrology. People want to know what's going to happen. The Christian doesn't need to know what's going to happen. Because he knows actually what's going to happen. That Christ is going to be on the throne. It's going to happen. It's set. It's secure. It's locked in. No one's going to change that. Listen to the commentary of Charles Simeon of this verse, on this verse. I love it. I love the language. I love the truth. And this is what he says. I quote, Behold here the felicity of the saints. Behold here the felicity of the saints. All the rest of the world are following after happiness and it eludes their grasp. But those who believe in Jesus have happiness following after them. Unquote. How marvelous. Do you see the reason for contentment? Do you see how there is really no reason to be discontent? Behold the felicity of the saints. All the rest of the world are following after happiness and it eludes their grasp. But those who believe in Jesus have happiness following after them. What image of the future makes you most content? Is it about you in a big house with your family? Is it about you at the top of the corporate ladder? Is it about you um, on a yacht or a cruise somewhere in the Mediterranean? What, What makes you happy? David His confidence is not in wealth and riches and fame following him. He actually wants to be followed and pursued by the attributes of God. Goodness, loving kindness, or mercy. 
He's not looking for material benefits and advantages. He's looking for spiritual blessing. Now, why is he doing that? Because of his identity. He is content with who he is. Question is, are we? If you want to know what contentment looks like for a Christian, well, hopefully that gives you an idea. The psalm gives us a fantastic overview of how we can pursue contentment in various aspects of our lives. And what's more, when we consider these aspects, we are confronted, hopefully, by whether or not we truly, we, we truly believe in the sufficiency of Christ as our shepherd. That's what the psalm is all about. The sufficiency of Christ for every circumstance and need. We believe he's necessary. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. He's necessary. But is he sufficient? Maybe, maybe not. Depends. Do you believe in Christ as your shepherd? Then allow me to challenge you with the following questions and we close with this. Do you seek riches? Well, then know that you are a co-heir with Christ. Are you content with that? Do you seek intellect and knowledge? Know that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Are you content with that? Do you seek power? Know that Christ is the one who has overcome. Are you content with that? Do you seek love? Know that Christ has died for you. Are you content with that? Do you seek friendship? Jesus is the friend of sinners. Is that enough? Do you seek food and basic necessities? Jesus says, don't let that bother you. Are you content with that? Are you seeking after truth? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Are you content with that? Do you seek peace? Jesus is our peace. Are you content with that? Do you seek justice? Well, know that Christ is going to return and judge the world one day. Are you content with that? Do you, do you see where I'm going with this? I want to leave you with this one idea. That if you think that there is anything or anyone who can better satisfy you than Christ, you are living a lie. I'm sorry to say that, but it's true. Because not only is Christ unsurpassed in his ability to make you content, he is unsurpassable. It is impossible for anyone or anything to beat him at making you more content. When you are outside the family of God, there is a debt owing on your part. And you know that when there is a debt owing your part, on your part, you cannot be content. You can't be content when you are in debt. You have no safety to protect you from God's condemnation. He is not your shepherd. He is your judge. You cannot be content with that. But when He saves you, when He adopts you, when He brings you into His family, when Christ is your shepherd, yes, yes, you can be content. Because the debt is removed. Nothing is owing. We just celebrated that today. Nothing is owing. My sin or the bliss 
Thank you, Kevin. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part. Not in part. No, no, no. But the whole. It is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. That's why we can sing. It is well. That is the reason. It is not because we think it is well with our soul and so I can sing it is well. It is because God has made it well. The one who could destroy us in hell forever has now wiped our slate clean. What more could we want? What reason have we to be afraid? Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. What blessed assurance are we talking about? That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. How can it not be well with our soul? As Christians, may we pursue contentment in these areas of our lives for His name's sake. Because Christ, our shepherd, is more than sufficient for our needs. Shall we pray? Lord, what a great joy to know that the God of David is also our God. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever Help us to see that the reason that we can be confident is not because of our faith, but because of your greatness. Lord, help us to see that the reasons we can be content are not superficially sentimental, but deeply and profoundly theological. May we rest and find that you are everything we need and much, much more. Amen.